Samira Ahmed and I'm chairing the evening. Um, the hashtag is London Thinks if you feel like tweeting because I think it's going to be quite a night. Um, and the aim of all these talks is to kind of present campaigners who can give us all kind of food for thought from their ideas, their experiences and their campaigns on fundamental rights. So Nate Phelps is going to tell you his own story and experience. He flew in uh, today um, and I've just been having the most amazing conversation with him um, just ahead of this starting. Um, I'm just going to outline the very bare outline of the story. I know many of you might have, have read a lot about him, which is why you're here. Nate's father, Fred Phelps, was a violent man who ruled his family. He founded the Westboro Baptist Church in Kansas. They came to prominence for picketing the funeral of Matthew Shepard, a young gay man who'd been murdered in a homophobic attack. And they went on to picket the funerals of American soldiers, um, carrying placards saying things like, God hates fags. Um, and Nate eventually escaped when he was a, a teenager. Um, and has been a prominent campaigner um, on atheism, on gay rights. He's also spoken up about the child abuse that he and his siblings experienced for many years. Um, he left home in 1976, which I remember now is bicentennial year when America was celebrating everything about its, you know, its greatest values. And he spent so much of his life since he's left speaking out about his experience so that we can learn lessons from it. So, Thank you for coming. I know a key part of the event is that you can ask your questions. After he speaks, I'll just ask a few questions and then open it up to you. We'll have a microphone and we'll raise the lights up for that. Um, but very much, I think, hoping to hear from Nate about his experience and what we can learn just in terms of the bigger issue about how we tackle prejudice, um, religious intolerance, and just trying to treat each other better. Um, so I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Nate Phelps to Conway Hall. Thank you. It's a perfect setup, because I can't see anybody. First of all, let me apologize. Um, I, caught, I caught a little something when I was in uh, Scotland, so I may uh, be forced to cough from time to time. I'll try to avoid that. Um, so a few weeks ago, I was, uh, I was traveling to uh, St. Louis to give a talk, and uh, as I was passing through the airport, uh, a gentleman called my name and, and stopped me, and turns out he had seen me speak a few years prior in, uh, in British Columbia, and we chatted for a few minutes. And then uh, he shifted gears on me, and he suddenly said, uh, so he's gone now. And I paused for a minute because I wasn't quite sure what he was talking about, and I realized he was speaking about my father's death. And... Uh, stood there for a moment longer and I said, yes, he's gone, but the disease lives on. In 1991, my father led uh, members of his uh, small church in Topeka, Kansas to uh, protest at the corner um, of Gage Boulevard and 10th Street in Topeka, Kansas. They were there protesting because this was a gathering spot for uh, uh, folks in the gay community and uh, he was trying to put pressure on the city council there to uh, to put an end to that, and the, uh, it was interesting because the folks in, in Topeka and, and in that general area of the, of the country uh, didn't necessarily disagree with his message. Um, they just disagreed with how he presented it, and they, they had had history with my father, so uh, they knew his nature, and 
They also took uh, exception to one specific sign that he, he held up that day that uh, read, God hates fags. So they had a battle for several years there, and then he started kind of branching out into uh, communities outside of the Topeka area and got a little bit of attention, more regional than, than uh, national. And then a few years later, Matthew Shepard was killed. Uh, for those of you who don't know who that is, a young man, a uh, young gay man from uh, Casper, Wyoming, had been uh, beat and left hanging on a uh, fence in the outskirts of the city and took him about seven days. He eventually died from his, uh, his wounds, his injuries. And um, because of the nature of the, of the crime, it became a national story, actually an international story. So his funeral was attended by a lot of, uh, a lot of the media and as well as a lot of crackpots, including my family. And at that point, um, they, had, they had increased the quality of their signs. They, they now had the uh, iconic neon signs that um, they were holding up, and, and there were folks there with big uh, wings made out of sheets that were surrounding them, trying to keep them from being seen. But they got national attention from that, and so their, their uh, efforts were gaining more traction. Then things started to slow down a bit. Uh, until after uh, 9-11 and uh, when the U.S. went to war in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, my father hit on the idea of, of uh, attaching the, the death of these soldiers to his message. Um, basically, his argument was that uh, these, these men were fighting, men and women were fighting for a country that was, was supporting the rights of uh, gay people, so God was killing them. And so he decided he would set up camp at their, at their funerals with his signs, uh, pretty much with that message. So it took him a little less than 10 years from being a, you know, a harassing the local community to becoming a national test case on the rights, on the limits of free speech, from belittling the, their neighbors to impinging on the international psyche with their biblical cudgel. And to them, the way they did it, it was nothing was sacred. No one was immune. Their victims were large and small. It was natural and man-made disasters where they showed up. School shootings, victims of school shootings, uh, killer tornadoes, hurricanes, and earthquakes... Uh, the death of the famous, such as Paul Walker, not too long ago, and then uh, their annual attendance at the Oscars. And yes, I include the Oscars in man-made disasters. <laughs> Where there's a national wound, you'll find the salt of the Westboro Baptist Church. Unless the folks of uh, London feel left out, on their website, godhatestheworld.com, they have this to say about you. God hates the United Kingdom. When WBC announced plans to conduct a peaceful picket outside the fag propaganda play, the Laramie Project, at Basingstoke, did I say that right? <laughs> My apology. <laughs> the fags and their enablers began to howl like the dogs they are. 
And in response, on February 18, 2009, Home Secretary Jackie Smith issued a ban to keep WBC out of the country. So you guys weren't left out. <laughs> the bottom line, their message is this. God hates everyone and everything in the world because some of us dare to insist that the mandate of equality be met for all citizens. When Steve Jobs died back in 2011, they announced their intentions of protesting at his uh, memorial service. Their argument was that, that he had uh, this uh, technology and had this uh, instrument that he could have put the message of God out there, and he had failed to do so. The irony was that they were using their iPhones to get the message out. <laughs> And then several years back, the, one of the main websites for the Ku Klux Klan in the United States had uh, put on the, the, the main page of their website a disclaimer that said that they were not affiliated with, nor did they condone, the activities of the Westboro Baptist Church. <laughs> now that's a feather in your hat, isn't it? My father's theological message was fed to us from infancy. Literally, the first Sunday that we were home from the hospital, we sat in the, the pews at Westboro Baptist Church and listened to him. There were verses that were written on chalkboards that we had to memorize. There were books and records and pictures, all telling the violent stories of the Old Testament. And then there was the painted sign with one corner broken off that sat in the vestibule of our church for years with a verse from the book of Hebrews painted on it, declaring, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. One of the first memories that I have of that place is I was six, seven or eight years old, and I was sitting in the, uh, in the uh, pews. It was a Sunday night, and my father was going on about hell and the lake of fire and eternity and the worm that eats on you never dies. And with this emerging obsessiveness, I decided that I was going to get my mind around this concept of eternity. As my mind struggled to grasp this concept, I had a feeling of dread seep into my chest and suddenly I broke into tears. Years later, I realized that this was one of the first indications that the walls of separation and exclusion were being built around my heart and mind. My father is a self-styled primitive Baptist, largely adhering to the teachings of John Calvin. Woven throughout the uh, doctrines of, of John Calvin, what's called the Tulip Doctrines, is this kind of overarching uh, idea called absolute predestination, which posits that in the council halls of eternity past, an omniscient, omnipotent God decided who would be born and of those people who would be saved and who would spend eternity in hell. The important part about this is that what, what turns this, um, what turns normal Christianity on its ear with this idea is that, that um, men don't make that decision. Modern Christianity basically argues that if you ask the Lord into your heart, you'll receive salvation and you'll spend eternity in heaven. Calvin says no such thing. Men are dead in their trespasses and sin and are not capable of making that choice. It's only God working in their heart. 
Over the years, my father has refined that doctrine to the point where now he honestly believes or believed that all of us are going to hell. Only he and his followers have been chosen by God in this end time. I was thinking about that coming in on the tube today from the Heathrow. The place was packed with people. And at every stop, the place was, the, the, uh, the stops were packed with people. And I was thinking, there's so much humanity here. And how ridiculous to assume that only 17 or 18 people in the entire world are going to find uh, eternal salvation. We were taught that the only true Bible is the King James Bible. And from that book, we learned a variety of doctrines and ideas. Among them, every thought and deed in our lives were laced with moral implications. Every decision was a decision for or against the will of God. Childhood indiscretions took on profound implications that reverberated down the halls of eternity. When we misbehaved, our father would rage for hours that we were sons of Belial, workers of iniquity, pawns of Satan, sinning against the Most High God. We learned that our hearts were deceitful and desperately wicked, that we were inherently evil and only God's work in our heart made us acceptable in His eyes. Our education about the world was fundamentally, profoundly colored by this message. Lead with the assumption that all you meet are inherently less, inherently evil, and inherently dangerous. One of my earliest doubts about this belief system rose from this question. If in fact the Adamic race is so thoroughly cursed with this moral corruption, how is it that we turn so willingly to the writings of these same corrupt men to find salvation? Of course, my father's answer is that the Bible says that these men are filled with the Spirit when they wrote these words. And as Louis Thoreau said in his second documentary about my family, well, it would, wouldn't it? It was ingrained in our minds that the very tools of discernment that we're born with will betray us. We learned not to trust the process of reasoning as it would raise ideas that contradicted the one truth that our Father had taught us. Any idea that was contrary to the ideas we were taught, our instinct was to challenge it, fear it, and reject it. And in the end, any violation of Fred's rules puts you at risk of violence, harassment, being ostracized from the family and church, and perhaps worst of all, divine retribution. About a year and a half ago, my, uh, two of my nieces left the church, Megan and Grace. And uh, at one point, they had made their way up to uh, Quebec, and there was a, an article written in the paper about them. And I was reading that article, and I came across this one passage, this one uh, uh, sentence that speaks well to this idea of uh, divine retribution. Megan says, we were both terrified after leaving. I was afraid we were going to hell. Many times when we were driving, I thought God was going to kill us. This is a fear that every one of those people live with that leave that church. And I mentioned violence. 
Violence was a fact of life in our home growing up there. As I reached the age of awareness, my father had made the decision that he was going to return to law school for a degree. The pressure that he was under in going to school as well as uh, maintaining his uh, family of, I think at that time, 10 kids, 11 kids, and his wife uh, led him to a, an addiction of uh, prescription amphetamines. And then to get to sleep at night, he started taking barbiturates and became addicted to those. And the combination of all this stress and these drugs made his, his temper uh, quick, violent, and indiscriminate. But despite those circumstances, he eventually graduated from law school, started practicing law, and then several years into that, he was suspended for ethical violations. So he had a two-year suspension, and he, for, he didn't have any more income coming into the family. So he hit on the idea that he would send the kids out to sell candy, ostensibly to sell candy for the church, to buy a new piano, and uh, then after six or nine months, when people got to asking why we hadn't bought the piano yet, then we were buying an organ. And then uh, another six or nine months went by, and now we're buying carpet for the church. But eventually, folks in the, in the local community got tired of us. So again, we started moving out into the, uh, the uh, towns around Topeka. I made our way to Kansas City and some of the bigger cities down to Wichita. And uh, somewhere in that process, we discovered that people spend more money when they're uh, drinking. So on Fridays and Saturday nights, we would be out selling candy in the bars in, in the big cities, peddling our wares. I don't know at the time, I think I was 11, 12 years old. And over to, uh, in the corner would be the strippers. Um, dancing. Now, you got to understand, I'm not complaining about the scenery. <laughs> it was the uh, apparent hypocrisy of young, young kids who were the only ones on the earth who were God's people were um, selling candy in, in those circumstances. And then on the first anniversary of my father's suspension, we came home from school found our mother sitting in the vestibule of the church. She had a stocking cap on her head, and she pulled the stocking cap off and exposed her, her hair, which had been cut off in some places down to the scalp. And she announced that uh, our father had cut her hair off because she wasn't in subjection to him. Women were second-class citizens in our church and our family. My father proclaimed this adamantly without room for compromise. The Bible was very clear on this subject. Eve had been deceived by a talking snake. So logically, she was a weaker vessel in all respects. Did you hear what I said, folks? <laughs> Eve had been deceived by a talking snake. And then Paul bolstered this misogynistic attitude in a variety of his letters to the early churches. Wives were to be in subjection to their husbands. So my father extrapolated from that that if they weren't, he had the right, even the obligation, to bring them back into subjection if he perceived that she had strayed. Yet when my father turned his instructive fist on my mother, 
I instinctively felt internal conflict. For me, it was intuitively wrong that a six-foot-two, 250-pound man be allowed to beat up a woman barely half his size. But this was from God, so no one dared to argue. But his so-called discipline didn't end with our mother. My father was also a strong believer in spare the rod, spoil the child. So at an early age, he introduced us to, the, to a Maddox handle, which is about a four-and-a-half-foot piece of wood with about a 13-inch circumference on the business end. And he would swing that like a baseball bat when he was disciplining his children. A typical beating consisted of maybe five or ten hits from that Maddox handle, and then he would yell at the kid for 15 or 20 more minutes, talking to them about what they had done wrong, talking to them about what uh, it would have been like in biblical times. They would have taken us out of the city gates and stoned us for not obeying our parents. And then he would return to the beating, the physical beating, and at this point the skin is damaged and stretched, so each new blow would split the skin and cause it to bleed. And oftentimes, if the Maddox wasn't available, he was more than willing to use his fists and his feet and his knees. Oftentimes, he would grab the child by the arms, swing him towards him, and drive his knee into their stomach repeatedly. He discovered early on that this had a remarkable capacity to restore order. I realized years later that although the physical healed, it was the verbal that lived on. But as I grew in that environment, my doubts grew with me. And as my doubts grew, my defiance grew. And as my defiance grew, the violence I experienced grew. In spite of his words, in spite of his uncanny ability to weave arguments and justifications from the Bible, I couldn't reconcile what I heard him say and what I saw him doing to others. It came down to this for me. How was it possible that the best God had to offer the world was this raging, hateful ideology? Where he saw brute, defiant beasts. Those are his words. I saw humans with generally good intentions making their way through the difficulties of life. Where he saw wishy-washy, mealy-mouthed sinners cast about by every wind. I saw people struggling to overcome their prejudices and trying to relate to those around them. And where he condemned great swaths of humanity for a variety of sexual sin, I entertained the possibility that there was more to our humanity than how we express, expressed physical love. When he would ridicule and abuse strangers, I would blush with embarrassment and empathy. My father hated that part of me. He called it weakness. And I, in turn, learned to feel great shame and frustration that my nature didn't match my father's expectations. Because even as I wrestled with the faith of my father, there was a large part of me that accepted his pronouncements of who I was as a person. Now, I'd like to shift gears here for just a minute because I want to talk to you about something I think is pretty important. The vast majority of people 
who've heard my family's message of condemnation and divine hatred respond with some form of, well, that's not my God. My God is a loving God, a caring God. Maybe that's true. But one fact that can't be disputed is that the beliefs held by the Westboro Baptist Church are well grounded in the words of the Bible. This book that is generally taken as the words of a benevolent God contains all the passages necessary to to come to the conclusions that my father arrived at. In fact, their version of Christianity was the mainstream version only 200 years ago. Proof of that can be found in a sermon that was referenced often by preachers of that day. The sermon by American theologian Jonathan Edwards was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And the essence of that sermon can be summed up in this sentence from it. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one time out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. In light of that, it's a revealing question to ask. How did we get from there to where we are today with Christianity? My father taught us that God doesn't change. It's one of his attributes. He's immutable. He's always been as he is. For this reason, my father abhorred any evidence of change in the message of the Bible that he saw. As he watched religion evolve to meet the changing ideology of societies, as it always has, he perceived it as a degradation of the truth. Adhering to the letter of the truth as he saw it became the evidence that they alone were maintaining and defending God's truth. So this is what's going on when I'm, I'm in my mid-teens and then my brother Mark uh, managed to leave home and he managed to stay gone. It was the first time something like this had happened and it was the first time I had entertained the possibility that that was even an opportunity or something I could explore. So I started considering the possibilities, started making my plans, but I knew that I couldn't leave before I was 18 because my father had made it clear that he had legal authority over us and he would find us, track us down and bring us back. As I turned 17, I managed to save up enough money and I bought an old Rambler Classic, spent $300 on it, and I hid it so no one knew I had it. And then as the As my 18th birthday approached, I started packing all my belongings, hiding them in the garage. And then on the night of my 18th birthday, I waited until everyone was asleep. Around 11 o'clock at night, I slipped out and backed the car into the driveway, opened the garage door and packed my belongings into the trunk. And then I went back into the house. And I stood in the dining room at the bottom of the stairs up to my father's bedroom. And I watched the old clock over to the left of the stairs. And I looked out the door to the right of the stairs out into the sanctuary of the church. And I could see my father's pulpit that he had preached from all those years. And I could hear his voice booming out to the tiny congregation as he meticulously and exhaustively defined the system of faith that justified his abuse. 
And I recalled him expounding on the verses that proved his enemies were the enemies of God. And I remembered him violently reinforcing his demands that his children contend for the faith with the same intensity that he had exhibited. I realized years later that it was an incubator of hate. And then I turned back to the clock and watched it slowly rise to midnight and I left home. So those who knew the truth about my childhood would look at me and talk to me sometimes about how normal I was. And I thought they exaggerated. I was fine. I'd gotten out of that violent situation. The future was rosy. If I occasionally disappeared from life, lost in a silent rage lasting for hours, that was just who I was. I didn't see it as relevant. And then in 1981, I moved to Southern California where I met Tammy. We dated for four years and I became a father to her three-year-old daughter. But each time I thought about asking her to marry me, I ran into this theological wall that said I would condemn both of us to eternity in hell because she had been married before. And then there was my utter inability to understand this concept of love. I obsessed over that, talked to her constantly about it. And one day Tammy came to me with a little three by five card where she had written a quote from a book she read. The quote said, love is not a feeling by which we are overwhelmed, but rather it is a committed, thoughtful decision. And I said, okay, I can do that. So I pushed the anxieties to the back of my mind and I asked her to marry me. And a month after we were married, she announced that she was pregnant. Now, see, my father taught us that children were a gift from God. And I had convinced myself from the time that I had left until the time I married that uh, because I had left, because I had uh, angered God, that he was not going to ever give me any children. So I saw this as a uh, tragedy waiting to happen. So I lived in silent fear for the next seven or eight months until my, my son Tyler was born. And on the day of his birth, it was the closest thing to a miracle I'd ever experienced in my life. As I sat and stared at this little human, my heart swelled with an emotion I had never felt before. Eighteen months later, we had twins, and things began to unravel soon after. The damage I thought I had avoided, the obstacles that I naively assumed weren't there, began to surface with a vengeance. My world shifted as I took on this labor of love of raising these three little people. I was determined that they would know love and inclusion, that they would never doubt for a moment the unconditional acceptance of their father. And at the same time, I began to ask questions without answers. How could a person feel this way toward another human and ever treat them the way our father treated us? That old familiar question came back. What was wrong with me? So I found a counselor with a theology degree and a psychology degree, and we worked together for a year or so as I began to unravel the hypocrisy of my father's religion. And then I joined a local evangelical free church, 
primarily to make sure that my children felt like they were involved with the community and that they belonged. And I listened to the message of the kinder, gentler God of mainstream Christianity. And I prayed. I prayed night and day for a sign that this God was there and that he cared. His silence took me deeper into the theology and I became an outspoken apologist for Christianity by day. But at night, sleepless, anxious hours passed as I played violent confrontations with my father over and over in my mind. In these battles, I would test new ideas and beliefs against his rhetoric and doctrine. But as I mentioned earlier, each time I would grab a hold of an idea, contrary to my father's, I would find myself struggling again with this fear that even to entertain such ideas was evidence that Satan was influencing my life. My depression deepened, and I went back into counseling. This time I was diagnosed with PTSD, and I checked into a mental health facility. I left there two weeks later, certain that the only way I could ever deal with this was by avoiding it altogether. So I went back to church and Bible study. And over the next 10 years, a handful of events conspired to draw me away from my fear of reason, and I began to challenge my father's ideas more overtly. As America plunged into the first Gulf War, my personal reaction was colored by a deep fear of Armageddon. As Hussein lobbed Scud missiles into Israel, images of nuclear holocaust in the Middle East haunted me. Then at Christmas time in 1994, I stopped on the way home. I had my three youngest kids with me. Stopped at a pizza hut to grab dinner. And we were waiting out in the car while the order was being made. Christmas carols were playing on the radio. And uh, suddenly my son Tyler, he was about seven at the time, he, uh, he asked me about Jesus. And I thought, well, I can tell him this. I can tell it in such a way that he will, he will um, appreciate it. So I started talking to him about heaven and what it was like for believers. And he interrupted me. And he wanted to know about the kids or the people who didn't believe. Bless his little atheist heart. <laughs> So I blundered in and explaining that the Bible says they go to a place called hell. He didn't ask me about hell, but he wanted to know how long. And I said, well, the Bible says eternity. And he wanted to know how long eternity was. And I said, forever. And Tyler burst into tears, and then my twins burst into tears, and so I burst into tears. <laughs> Soon after that, I stopped taking my kids to church, and I started teaching them to think critically. I challenged them constantly over the ideas that they brought home from school, taught them to challenge the truth of those in authority over them. And in the midst of all this, I realized that I wasn't doing this myself. Because so I began to challenge the leaders of my church, and they had no answers. And then September 11th happened. 
There was a young lady who lived in our community named Lisa Frost. She had graduated from the University of, uh, or Boston University, was to go home and spend a couple of weeks with her family, and then she was moving to the Bay Area to start a new career. As chance would have it, she was on the second plane that went into the World Trade Center. So I knew her father, so I reached out to him and we worked together on her memorial service. And I watched him. I watched him as he struggled to make sense of this incredible loss in his life. And I watched my neighbors and I watched my family and I watched my friends. And I watched the country respond as they collectively condemned an act of blind faith by turning to blind faith for answers. And then in 2004, for the first time in my life, I picked up a book on the question of God that wasn't written by a Christian. Michael Shermer's The Science of Good and Evil changed everything for me. As I poured over his words, hope stirred in my heart. Here was someone who posited a reality that I had secretly imagined for years. The most remarkable part of all this for me was I realized at that point that I wasn't alone. And as I read the book, it occurred to me that we live in a world of ideas. We define our reality with ideas. We give credibility to ideas by calling them facts or capital T truth. But I realized that they're just ideas until they're vetted by reality and withstand the test of evidence. So I began to challenge the ideas that were hardwired in my brain. What gives the Bible validity is the inspired word of a creator. Is the evidence sufficient to retain that belief? Lacking the evidence, what gives the claim supported by that idea legitimacy? What real proof do I have that physical abuse is necessary to raise a child properly? What evidence is there that women are inherently inferior? And what proof independent of a supernatural lawgiver justifies the idea that a certain group of people should be shunned and treated unequally because they love someone of the same gender? I spoke a moment ago about September 11th. In the emotional upheaval following that attack, watching people struggle with their vague ideas they had of God's and divine retribution, watching people I held in great respect descend into a morass of self-guilt and fear, it occurred to me that the mechanism of blind faith could very well be one of the greatest threats to humanity today. It's an epistemology thing. Let me put it to you this way. A fundamental attribute of faith is that it cannot be challenged. If I invoke blind faith as justification for a belief, I am bound to allow that from all others. So by invoking blind faith for my beliefs, I now live in a world where I must accept a man's argument that it's okay to fly planes into buildings since he builds that argument on faith. The thing that protects a people from dangerous ideas is the ability to challenge them with reason and logic. And faith takes that ability away. 
Accountability disappears and literally anything goes. The King James Bible talks about faith, hope, and love as desirable attributes. Let me tell you a story and we can challenge that idea. Little 18-month-old Dean Hillman was playing in the backyard of his Pennsylvania home. He was running around, stepped on a piece of glass. His mother heard his cries. And it was love that motivated his mother to gather him up, bring him into the house, and call her husband home from across the street. It was her fa- his father's love that motivated him to clean the wound, bind it, and try to comfort the little boy. Several hours passed. The bleeding continued, and once again, love motivated the parents to reach out for additional help. But faith motivated them to reach out to Pastor Charles Reinert of the Faith Tabernacle Church where they attended. And when Pastor Reinert arrived, it was faith, particularly a faith in a verse in James that says, if any man is sick among you, anoint him with oil and pray over him and he shall be raised up. And with that faith, Pastor Reinert anointed the child with oil and started praying. And the parents prayed. And the hours passed and the bleeding continued. They soon called in more from the church to to pray over the little boy. And the love lines etched the faces of the parents as the little boy turned gray and his temperature rose. But faith motivated them to choose an unaccountable method. And it was faith that kept little Dean from ever seeing his second birthday. But the tragedy doesn't end there. When the people of Pennsylvania went to the courts for justice, they discovered that there was a little-known passage in the child abuse statute for that state. The passage says that if a parent fails to provide proper medical care for a child because of a deeply held religious belief, they are not guilty of child abuse. Faith has the temerity to argue that if you're gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, or queer, you are evil. Never mind what you do in your life. Never mind if you bring joy and comfort to others. Never mind if you act with kindness and generosity. If you're a member of the LGBTQ community, you are prejudged as evil. And reason cannot dislodge this wrong idea from the faithful mind. Ideas. Let me challenge you with a new idea, a simple one. Faith is not a virtue. It allows evil to flourish unchecked. And it's the justification for too much hatred. But religion isn't all bad. Christians do a lot of good. Besides, my God is a God of love. He doesn't hate. I won't disagree with you. But I don't care how one defines their personal idea of a God. I care about the doctrines that come from religion, the religions that they claim. Doctrines that harm humans. When I consider these ideas, I sometimes wonder if we understand just how much harm we do when we hurt others. 
I wonder if we understand the price of that harm, the social cost of injustice. Recently, I watched a video by a gentleman named Rory O'Neill. <clears throat> He's Ireland's number one drag queen under the name Miss Panty Bliss. And he talks about a car going by one day when he's standing at a crosswalk and someone rolled down the window and yelled, fag. He said, which I am, but it felt oppressive to me. Felt oppressive like all the other jabs and insults that he endures. He talks about turning on the TV to a panel debating whether it's just to be unjust to a certain group. And he says they debated as though they had the right to. And he says it feels oppressive to him. And he talks about now when he's at a crosswalk, he checks himself, tries to see what the tell is. How do they know? And he talks about how he hates himself for doing that. How it's oppressive to him. And you get a real human glimpse of the burden that he and so many millions more carry around. And I wonder at how many of his resources that could have been used to advance his life, to improve society, that are wasted in simply maintaining, carrying on, dealing with this unnecessary imposed burden, this oppressiveness. There's a, play, there's a poem called Religious Child by Sherry Motless. It goes like this. Aware of light and yet condemned to grope through dark regression's cave, told she must find life's purpose in that blackness without hope, denied the luminescence of her mind until at last she finds the darkness kind. Religious child, a babe once bright and fair, curls up, tucks in her tail, and says her prayer. There it is, folks. We do great damage to this precious resource. And I wonder how much further could we be if these religiously imposed burdens didn't exist. It's these things that come to mind when someone wants to defend religion. Defend it as at least benign, perhaps even good. In my mind, there's something better to defend. An ideology that's sustainable. Humanism. Equality. And justice. Imagine a society where there's no longer an issue about who one chooses to love and marry. Imagine a world where a person's reproductive organs don't limit them. And imagine a paradigm shift in parenting where we let go of the idea that we have the right to impose our limitations on our children. A new way of thinking that we have a sacred duty to minimize the harm we saddle our little ones with as they go out into the world. We are changing the world in many ways. But in the words of Robert Frost, we have miles to go before we sleep. An eight-year-old Yemen girl recently died from the injury she suffered on her wedding night at the hands of her 40-year-old husband. A 20-year-old transgender woman was deliberately targeted and beat to death by a group of young men in New York. And more locally, David Robertson of the Free Church of Scotland is up in arms against the Scottish Secular Society's insistence that science be taught in science classes. 
Religion set this stage, but I believe we can do better. So my father passed this last March, as I predicted he would. Not that such a prediction is noteworthy. It's just that he and his followers didn't think he would. To the disappointment of many, his passing was fairly uneventful, and I'm thankful for that. There is no real resolution for those hurt by him to dance on his grave. But his passing doesn't mark an end to the cruelty and hatefulness of his message. The virus has been transferred to nine of his children, and that same virus still enjoys a robust collection of hosts throughout the world. On another note, recently my son Tyler sent me a photo text. In the photo, there's a picture. Well, he's sitting in the front, his girlfriend's standing over his right shoulder, and he's reading a book. Got a kind of perplexed look on his face. And uh, his girlfriend has a, she's drinking a ginger ale and has a sleeve of crackers in one, the other hand. And her shirt's got two little handprints and the words, let me out on it. Oh, and the book he's reading says what to expect when you're expecting. <laughs> so it took me a couple seconds to piece that all together. <laughs> and I had that feeling again. I had that feeling when Tyler was born, and it was just, it's hard to explain. There's just so much joy, and it's, it, it, it colors your world. It's priceless. To me, that's, that's my spirituality. I want to break into an emotional version of the circle of life. <laughs> so let me close with this final thought. The famed British philosopher Bertrand Russell was interviewed late in his life. He was asked, what would you, like, what would you think it's worth telling future generations about what you've learned? His reply included these words. I should like to say two things, one intellectual and one moral. The intellectual thing I should want to say is this. When you're studying any matter or considering any philosophy, ask yourself only what are the facts and what is the truth that the facts bear out. Never let yourself be diverted either by what you would like to believe or what you think would have beneficent social effect if it were believed, but look only and solely at what are the facts. That's the intellectual thing I should wish to say. The moral thing I should wish to say, I should say love is wise and hatred is foolish. Thank you all very much. That was absolutely lovely. Um, I just want to ask a few questions and I'll open it up for questions. You said near the end there the virus has been transferred to nine of his children after your father died. What is your relationship with your, your wider family now? What's the situation with who's in the church still and who's out? Well, when, when you leave that church, we knew growing up that if we left, we would be cut off. So I don't have a relationship with anyone who's still there. They're not allowed to. 
Well, they weren't allowed to, and now they just don't. Um, but the, the two that have left, um, I have a good relationship with them. It's one of the things I find very hard, even when you talk it through and you've experienced it, but the fact that there were 13 of you mm -hmm. as children in that home, and yet you seemed so alone. And I, I wonder, when you look back at that time, was there a sense that you were able to communicate with each other somehow and got a sense of who else might have been thinking the way you were? Because you clearly did very early on have a sense this is not right. And ultimately that led to you preparing your escape. Yeah. When it came to the question of, of your beliefs, um, you, we never did talk about that with one another. It was, it was just assumed that everybody believed what my father taught. It wasn't safe to talk about it because of word got back to him that, that there was someone questioning it, it would, uh, it could re result in violence. Was there a sense that you were encouraged to report each other or anything like yes, that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we were, we were more than willing to, when you live in an environment where there's violence, uh, you, there doesn't have to be violence all the time. It's, it becomes the threat of violence and the fact that it is unpredictable that is, is so powerful in holding you there. And when you're faced with that kind of violence, you will literally say and do anything to avoid it. So throwing someone under the bus, we didn't give it a second thought if it was going to save us. That was just the environment we were in there. You speaking about your experiences, which you do regularly, it seems a very important mission that you have. Tell me why. Well. What I have found, after the first time I talked, suddenly people were, were writing to me. There are a lot of people out there who grew up in, in, um, in homes where there was just violence. Didn't have to have anything to do with religion. And, and they could relate to this and, it, and they felt empowered because someone was talking about it. And then there were people who grew up specifically as I did in, in religious-tinged violence. And they were feeling the same way. but. What really surprised me was how many people from the uh, gay community were writing to me and, and basically saying the same thing. They, they related to the uh, feeling different and um, being treated different because of something that they had no control over. So all of this communication is what really got me, um, took me to the point where I, I, I believed that I didn't really have a choice. I had to talk about it. The other thing that's very important to remember is, of course, this would have been the 60s when you were growing up in that household. Yeah, um, and then obviously it was 76 when you were 18 that you left and were right. We like to think that there's so much more openness about this, that things can't be as bad. What would you say is the reality of the way, how far it's possible <coughs> to still raise a family in that abusive, closed way? And, and you know, the sort of the social scene in America um, today compared to when you were growing up? I would say that, that the, uh, the idea, the over, overall idea in society has improved somewhat. But I have no doubt in my mind that there is still a lot of this going on. Um, it goes underground. It, it's not so open anymore. But when you have these um, um, conservative religious communities, they tend to take care of themselves. And within that community, there's still a lot of that kind of violence going on. Um, just because we have decided as a, as a society that uh, 
corporal punishment, physical um, abuse is not acceptable, doesn't mean that it doesn't go on because God gives them permission to do it, right? So they just look at these decisions that society makes as um, evidence that, that society in general is godless. And we have to fight against that, uh, that evil that's in the world. Is Certainly in Britain, um, it can seem that America is much more overtly religious society. I mean, it is. I think all the polling suggests you know, the vast majority of people do believe in God and um, are much more likely to be active and practicing Christians. So given that you're, you are very, very honest about the fact that you really do believe religion is something um, that is the fun- part of the fundamental problem, how far do you think that argument can make headway in modern America? Is the situation getting better? Is it worse? Yeah. I, you know what? It will be a long time before America becomes like Europe, but I think we're moving in the right direction. What makes you think that? That we're moving in the right direction? Well, you just look at the, at the numbers of people who don't uh, report an affiliation with any belief in God, and that number's going up. Um, I, beyond that, I, I don't have any other choice but to believe that. <laughs> Thank you. Let's take some questions, if we can raise the lights a little. We have a roving mic, and we have this new gadget, which is, it's like, oh, is that freaking you out a bit? Right. Sorry. This is the mind control brainwashing part of the evening we did tell you about. Um, we also have some kind of gadget I've never seen before. You have the blue cube. This is really going to freak you out. And it's a microphone that can be gently hurled around the room. Although, if you throw it and try to drop kick it, it will break. Don't do that. Yeah, don't kick it. Right. But anyway, you could... So maybe the first person that said, so there we go. We're going to try out that microphone first. Yep, go for it. Yeah, you're supposed to chuck it. Anyway, you can chuck it after. I, I'll be very... Thanks for sharing your... Uh-oh. Having a Norman um, Collier moment. Story. Just hold it closer. Hello? So much for the gadgets. Yeah, let's, 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 let's try a regular mic. Oh, no, oh, I've used oh, a microphone. Fantastic. Sorry <laughs> about that. I um, promised it would work. And hold it quite close to your face. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It, it, much of it bears similarity to both my experience and my partner Tim's experience with, with fundamentalist religion and our exit and our experience of exiting it. I think there are two questions we have. The first is... What, in your mind, is the best way to enter into a dialogue with people of faith in changing these extreme beliefs, which I agree with you are a pernicious mental virus, or as Susan Blackmore would say, a meme, an infective meme that gets transmitted around society. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. The second thing, I found it very helpful to have a psychological understanding of such extreme uh, views in the form of traumatic narcissism of people whose self-identity really can only be sustained by denigrating the others. And to what extent have you found having that psychological understanding of such pathological ways of viewing the things, rather than putting it within a religious framework, as helpful in terms of seeing things as, as pathological? So those are the two questions. Firstly, okay, how do we... How do we no, talk to them? Thanks, I'll, we'll get, we'll get an answer. No, you've, you've done it really beautifully. So the first is about how to engage with religious people. Yeah. And the second aspect is how far thinking about it in terms of psychology rather than religion is this, the way to do it. Okay. And I don't know. No. Um, <laughs> you've got a degree. I've got to tell you, this question about how to engage is, has been one that, 
that seems to be on the, um, on the minds of a lot of people in the atheist community and the secular community. Um, I had Dave uh, Silverman come up to Calgary and speak um, on firebrand atheism because he was the recognized target of a, an article uh, written by, I believe, Phil Platt called uh, Don't Be an Asshole. Something along that line. Basically saying, you know, that there's a right way to do it and there's a wrong way to do it. And um, listening to all the different people who have talked about this and observing all the different ways that are out there to talk about this, I am strongly of the opinion that you talk about it exactly how you want to talk about it. And that, that will get through to some people. And then there's going to be other people out there who kick them in the knee and that will get through to some people. And there's other people out there who are screaming and hollering and that will get through to some people. I think all of the ways are good ways. I think people are in different places at different times in their life and people have different personalities and that they will be impacted differently by different ways of presenting the message. Uh, I actually had someone um, up in, uh, in uh, Scotland basically said to me that had his friend not been, um, uh, what was the word he used, dismissive of his religion, that he probably wouldn't have been motivated to um, do the work that he did that led him down the road of becoming an atheist. So there you have an example of someone who's basically being an asshole, and it worked. So, Thank you. you see I the said, point? Thank you. Take um, a question from the lady just there, yes, and then we'll take the one behind and come back on the side. Yes, okay. You don't throw that one, yeah, you just speak. <laughs> um, I'm actually asking this um, on behalf of my all my RS class. We do ethics and philosophy at school, so we're like a range of like 17 to 18 year olds, and we took a particular interest in the Westboro Baptist Church just because it's so different to anything we've heard of, um, particularly of Shirley, and we were just interested in why your views became so different to maybe some of your other siblings and why you think some people like Shirley or your other siblings didn't like leave also. Thank you. So it is, I mean, I was wondering that. Why do you think it's only you? I know you, you have two other siblings who left, but so many didn't. And, and was there something just different about the way you thought about things, your character, your identity? Yeah, I, I think that's an, impossible to nail right down to one thing. I think you're talking about um, your temperament, your... Um, predispositions that you're born with, and then the, the actual experiences that you have there. And I talked in my, my, um, in my speech about how different I was or am from my father, just temperamental-wise, and uh, how much that affected me. So, um, you know, it, it's tempting to say that there's something superhuman about it, but I just... It, it just felt natural to me. It felt like it was, um, that that was where truth was, if I went that direction. Thank you. Um, this was a um, lady, no, it was a gentleman sitting in the back row there with his hand up. Yes, please, that was the next one. Sorry. Thank you. That was a, a very interesting talk. I apologize for my sore throat. Um, we have a law in this country and across Europe that you, you, do, you cannot physically assault your, your child, uh, I think up to the age of probably 18. 
I mean, what are the prospects? Because I'm always interested in solutions to problems. Uh, I just wonder what you think of the prospects of having a law whereby we don't mentally assault our children with religious faith. Because it, I think, amounts to a, a, a mental assault. It has such a pro can have such a profound impact on the way you live your life afterwards that you should be, in a sense, mature and able to make that decision when you've been informed about all the religious conditions there are. I think Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion, that's one of the key things he did put a label on was the idea that it's, it's a form of child abuse to, t yeah. to tell a child yeah. that you have to believe this and the discussions about hell seemed quite, yeah. quite yeah. interesting examples of that. Yeah. I hesitate to talk about this too much because it seems so far off, so unlikely, but I, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think that we, um, you know, Dawkins even goes so far as to say that it's, it's unjust, it's a form of abuse to tell a child that Santa is real, right? I'm, I don't know if I'm ready to go that far, but I, I, I see his point. I think that we, we um, in as much as we can't know something for certain, we have an obligation to, to say that at least to our children. This is what I believe. Um, I will leave it up to you. But see, you not only have the fact that, that you're immersing that child for all those years in this idea, so he can't discern the difference between truth and fiction. Um, but you, they put up all these other roadblocks, like I will cut you off, or I will, you know, you, how could you do this to your parent? That, you know, all those kind of, of um, emotional tools that they use to, to, to force the person to believe something that they really have no business or have no ability to know for certain themselves. No, that you talked in your presentation very well about the, the fear of divine retribution being the biggest thing that hung over you, even after you, oh, you yeah. left home. Absolutely. There was a question on this side, I think. Um, yes, the hand that shot up and then went away again. Put it back up. Yes. <laughs> no, and then I'll take the gentleman in front. I was just going to take the lady behind you first and then the gentleman in front. Um, hi, Nate. Great talk. I, I saw you recently at a Apostacon. Awesome. Um, it, it's, it's a atheist conference in Kansas, I mean Nebraska. Anyway, um, recently the human rights campaign in the US uh, released a new, I guess, project called All God's Children. And it's a project in Mississippi where they say that, um, you know, Mississippi is the most religious state in the entire US. And they thought that it would be nearly impossible to successfully engage a large majority of Mississippians about LGBT equality without discussing it in the context of faith. So this is, um, you know, it's, it's something I guess that no one's tried. What do you think about this? Because obviously, you know, you being an atheist and most people thinking that this shouldn't be about religion, it should be about people. What do you think about this approach? Do you think it, it's going to be effective based on who people are and what they believe based mostly down in the South? So let me, let me make sure I'm clear. So the, the program is designed to bring the church and the LGBT community together? Well, no, no, it's, 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 a, it's, um, it's like a public support campaign. They're gonna be doing TV commercials and door-to-door -door kind of talking to people and trying to have discussions about accepting people in the context of faith. Like it says, you know, um, we are all God's children. It is only for God to judge, not us. We need okay. to treat everyone with respect. Got it. So it's sort of trying to get Christians to accept yes, LGBT. Yes. 
on and the basis it in the within the of terms faith. of their faith. Thank yes. you. Yep. Thank you so much. Well, that's one way to do it. Um, I, I, for one, have, have always found that, um, well, I think as a good atheist, you should find that, that kind of strategy uh, irrelevant because, as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's a non-issue. But there are a lot of people out there who believe it's an issue and, and for who it is an issue. So um, I have grudgingly moved in the direction of accepting those efforts that are out there because uh, it will win some, some people um, over to the idea of, of accepting or at least tolerating the LGBT community. So in principle, I guess I'm in, I'm in favor of it. Yeah. But you're uneasy about it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. you know, to me, I, I've heard some pretty good arguments, uh, and and I see it as as that. I, I speak about it in my talk about religion moves in the direction of society. It must if it's going to survive, and th and that's what this is. That's what we're talking about is is coming up with justifications, with reasons that people can be at ease with. Okay, I can still be a Christian but I can still accept that, that uh, we should treat these people equally. Mm. Okay, it, it, it gets the job done, at least for the time being, right? Thank you. Yeah. I'll just take the gentleman's question. I think this may have to be our last one just because of, of time, but uh, go for it. Thank you for the talk, it was absolutely fantastic. My question was around you keeping track of the church. Do you still listen for news and, and what's happening? Yeah. And how has it been since your father's death, if you don't mind me asking? Um, I, I do keep track of it. I think I, that's part of my responsibility. Um, and they're very quiet lately, relatively speaking. Mm. They, um, there's a lot of um, silence about exactly what did happen with the death of my father leading up to his death. Um, exactly what the leadership situation is like there. I do know that they have, they have uh, soundly silenced Shirley. I don't know if, you know, how, how much folks are keeping up on that, but Shirley is a, and this is one of those things that people brought up from time to time, what is a woman doing, kind of the, the, the head of this, this um, campaign. And my father, I, I, I've always said my father was practical more than anything else, right? He, basically, the women were the better speakers in the family, so, so he's going to use them. But as he was moving um, to, the, you know, as, as it got clearer and clearer that he wasn't going to make it, uh, they, they developed a, an eight man, uh, eight men who are like the deacons and the, the leaders of the church. And part of that whole process was them um, slapping Shirley down. So she's, um, she has kind of become um, a side part of the whole thing now. So did I just go off on a tangent? No, 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 not at all. I think it was a very practical question. People generally would like to know what's happened to your family and to the church. Yeah. Um, I'm really sorry, but we've run out of time. Unless we're allowed, we ask you five minutes over. I'll take a couple more. What's your feeling? <coughs> yes, five minutes over, because there were so many. I'll take the lady there and then the gentleman here. Uh, yes. No, the lady just in the scarf there, where you are. Yeah. Is it just? I'm sorry, it's really dark. Really sorry. <laughs> uh, a, a non a question. What do you think about a pandemic kind of hatred, which is non-religious? For example, in the Second World War, Nazis 
hating the Jews or anti-Semitism and the growing hatred of Muslims? Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it, about that large-scale hatred and fear. So the example of the, the Nazi attitude to Jews. But attitudes to Islam are quite interesting and to Muslims as individuals. Um, interesting yeah. question. What's your thoughts? What do I think about the whole issue with the Muslims? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, you don't have to conflate them. It's interesting that you, that's the two you chose to give. But this idea of a bigger, a kind of pandemic kind of fear and hatred. Yeah, yeah. yeah I can relate to the fear because um, in the absence of information, we, we tend to look for uh, answers with what little information we have. And 9-11 created a lot of fear, and, and there's a lot of... There's a lot of imagery out there right now that says the danger exists where Islam exists. Um, so that's the emotional side of it. The practical side of it says that you know there's 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 more to this. That there's this is the time that we gather more information. This is the time where we we ask the questions and we try to find out the real truth of the matter. And I um, have reached out to several leaders in in Calgary where I live. And um, there's the, the largest mosque in Western Canada right now is, is there in Calgary, and it's, um, it's for the uh, Ahmadi Muslims. Ahmadi, well, Ahmadi Muslims are persecuted by a lot of other Muslims, and yeah. they're considered heretical. Um, but you get, a, you, you get a real clear picture of the, for want of a better term, the kinder, gentler side of Islam when you talk to the people in, in, in that uh, Um, I don't I don't see Islam as as much different than Christianity or any different than Christianity was um, you know 1500 years ago it's it's in its growing stages Christianity could could easily in the right circumstances become a violent or justification for violence again Um, would would you consider anti-semitism in the same light I haven't thought about it. Hmm. I don't. I don't know that I could speak intelligently to that. No, you're, right now. you're entitled to express it. Like this is not something I'm. Yeah. About. But it's it's a very interesting question. Is, yeah. Thank you. Very thought provoking. There was a question in the front that I'd agreed to take. Was it you? Or was it a lady? Was it a real lady this time? No. It's, sorry. It's a, this is definitely a man. Go for it. I'm really sorry. This is all just my eyesight. There was no light on you. I'm beginning okay. to get a bit paranoid now. <laughs> um, Nate, a fellow survivor um, of religious abuse. Um, I grew up in an ACE school as well. Um, not the same as you, but you know, similar background. So first of all, thank you. And thank you for being an ally on our behalf, um, speaking up for the LGBT, uh, etc. communities. Uh, I think thank you for that. Um, what would you say to someone who who just fundamentally disagrees with you on this idea that um, the Westboro Baptist Church doctrine was wrong, who, who would turn around and say, you know, that, that was the absolute truth, that's how it should be. Um, Fred was a, a man of God. What, what, would, what would you say to them? Do you ever meet people like that, who, who actually would defend them? Oh, sure, them? yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's, it's funny that they sound so similar when they have that kind of theology. Um, here's, here's the thing I learned. When I was going through that process of deconverting or whatever you want to call it, I was looking for the right God, right? I mean, okay, so if this isn't the right God, then who's the right God? Well, then this person's telling me this is the right God. 
<clears throat> what it boils down to for me, what it boiled down to for, for me in the end was that there is no particular bit of evidence that makes one truth different than another. Said a little differently, there is no evidence at all that there's truth or um, facts associated with any of these belief systems out there. So I, I guess the short answer would be I would ask them what, what proof do they have? What makes this one correct over all these other ones? And when you start digging, you get to the point at some point, every time I've had the conversation, I get to the point where someone finally says, well, I just believe it on faith. So once that comment is made, then the discussion is over. Thank you. I think we'll have to leave it there, Sadie. But thank you so much for your time, mate. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>